ABC Radio Network celebrates its first fabulous 50. Good evening, Mr. First Lantern. Good evening, Mr. Mr. North American. All the ships at sea, let's go to press. Where? The only thing we have to fear. Ladies and gentlemen, easy aces. Mr. Allen! We are resolved to destroy Hitler. Henry! Henry Aldrich! Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman. You were expecting maybe Emperor Shapiro Hito? Let the word go forth. Ignition. Lift off. I have a dream. Hello, Linda. I'm mortified. Float like a butterfly. And sting like a bee. Let me make one point clear. NBC Radio, America's first network, presents highlights from its first 50 years. Five one-hour shows with hosts Ben Grower, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Arlene Francis, and John Chancellor. And special material by David Brinkley. Brought to you by the premium wines of Ernest and Julio Gallo. And by the makers of other fine quality products. Your host this hour, Ben Grower. It all really began back in 1912. The date, April 14th. SS Titanic ran into iceberg, sinking fast. The dots and dashes that spelled out this news were heard by a young wireless operator at a station on top of Wanamaker's department store in New York. For the next 72 hours, without a break, he became the only link with the developing story. As President Taft ordered all other stations to shut down in order to keep this one clear line of communication open. Through this event, David Sarnoff, that was the operator's name, proved to the world the value of radio. In the years that followed, it progressed from dots and dashes to words and music. Then, on the evening of November 15th, 1926, a thousand elegantly attired guests gathered in the grand ballroom of the old Waldorf Astoria in New York, down on 34th Street, for the first broadcast of the NBC radio network. They, and several million of us at home, listening to one of the 26 stations that made up the network, heard these opening words from NBC's first president, Merlin Aylesworth. Beginning tonight, you will receive a new thrill in radio. In the future, those engaged in productions will, through the power of radio broadcasting, with modern radio equipment, offer their talents, whether in song, drama, comedy, or orchestral music. And NBC radio was on its way. Opera stars sang, orchestras played, comedians made us laugh. One of the very first was Will Rogers, who just loved to poke fun at everybody's favorite target. With Congress, every time they make a joke, it's a law. Uh, You know, and every time time they make a law, it's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds as timely today as it did 50 years ago, doesn't it? When the opening festivities were over and the network moved on to regular daily broadcasting, our first great comedy stars, Amos and Andy, also found politics a source of fun. You don't know politics like I do. Uh, Tell me this, though. Uh, Why can't they have a Democrat and a Republican president at the same time? The trouble with that is the Republican would get everything messed up for the Democrats and vice versa. And what? Vice versa. He ain't running, is he? You know, 
Amos and Andy were so popular that when 7 o'clock rolled around and they were on the air, just about everything stopped. Phone calls, conversation, even meals. Well, comedy and music were what listeners wanted. So NBC went out and got the best. In 1928, Broadway's most exciting star, Al Jolson, joined us. What do you think has come over me? I can't stand it. I feel a song coming on. Give out. I feel a song coming on. And I'm warning you, it's a victorious, happy and glorious new train. And from the Ziegfeld Follies, where he was billed as the perfect fool, Edwin came to NBC, eventually winding up as Texaco's fire chief. The title of tonight's opera is Rosalie. Rosalie is so fat that when she goes to bed, she reminds you of an ocean liner. <laughs> it takes a couple of tugs to get her out of a slip. <laughs> I got some that are worse than that. Also, from Broadway and the movies, the beloved little banjoized Eddie Cantor, whose wife Ida didn't mind when he sang about other girls. If you knew Susie like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a girl. There's none so classy as this fair lassie. Oh, 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 my goodness, what a chassis. We went. Then there was a chap who added the word crooner to our vocabulary, Rudy Valley who, on his own program, played straight man to comedian Jack Pearl, who played the role of Baron Munchausen, teller of tall tales. Just a second. Do you want me to believe that you swam all the way from New York to South America? Well, I would prefer it. Well, I, I'm not going to believe a thing like that. Rudy, if you ain't going to believe a thing like that, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of trouble with the stuff that comes later. You see... And then there was the man who was not just loved by his audiences, but by his fellow comedians as well, the peerless Jack Benny. For your information, Don, when I started on radio, I was 22. What are you talking about? I knew you then and you had gray hair. Don, I was born with gray hair. I was worried about the doctor bill. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't pay him slapping me when my back was turned. <laughs> And, Don, here's an amazing coincidence. After all these years, who do you think is sitting in the audience this very moment? The doctor. No, his lawyer. The case comes up in court. <laughs> what a lineup of great talent NBC had right from the start. And that went for newsmen as well. John Chancellor will tell us about that shortly. The first Fabulous 50 will continue right after this. Now back to the first Fabulous 50 with Ben Grower. You know, from the earliest days, NBC Radio News brought our listeners something newspapers could never provide. Immediacy. The story as it happened. And in addition, the actual voices of those involved. I'm happy to have John Chancellor with us to illustrate this. John? Thank you, Ben. The first great example of the concept Ben has just discussed begins on the 20th of May, 1927. The Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age. 23 Skidoo and OU Kid. Clara Bow was appearing in Rough House Rosie, Lon Chaney and Mr. Wu. The country was thriving, full of hustle and bustle. But at Yankee Stadium that evening, before the heavyweight championship fight between Jack Sharkey and Jim Maloney, 
40,000 people stood in silent prayer to wish Godspeed to a young man who, that morning, had started on a flight to immortality. The world waited while monitors reported sightings, Halifax, Nova Scotia, then Belfast, Ireland, Cherbourg, France, and finally, 33 and a half hours later on NBC Radio. This is Lowell Thomas in New York. He made it. Charles A. Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy as they call him, landed at Le Bourget Airport, Paris at 5.24 this afternoon, thus becoming the first person to fly New York to Paris nonstop. Charles Lindbergh, the lone eagle, became the reigning hero of the world. Wild receptions in Paris, London, and when he returned to this country on the U.S. cruiser Memphis, he was greeted by cheering throngs in Washington, D.C. NBC Radio was there in the person of Graham McNamee. And now the National Broadcasting Company and Associated Radio Stations ask you to just listen to the band for a few moments because, particularly, this is the first time band music or music has been transmitted from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast. This was followed by President Coolidge's speech at the Washington Monument. I bestow the distinguished flying cross as a symbol of appreciation for what he is and what he has done upon Colonel... Charles A. Lindbergh. When Coolidge described Lindbergh, it sounded as though his speechwriter had dipped into a thesaurus. Intelligent, industrious, energetic, dependable, purposeful, alert, quick of reaction, serious, deliberate. One attribute the president neglected to include was Lindbergh's sense of humor which Lindy revealed during a speech at a press club dinner later that day. When I landed at Le Bourget, I landed with the expectancy and the hope of being able to see Europe. And I wasn't in any hurry to get back. And I was informed that while it wasn't in order to come back home, that there'd be a battleship waiting for me next week. Lucky Lindy, lucky indeed, although his ability and courage played a decisive role in his success. And... When the young hero went on to marry the talented, charming heiress, Anne Morrow, it seemed that all the ingredients for a storybook happy ending had been assembled except one. The birth of their first child, a boy, Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr., provided that final ingredient. Lucky Lindy! But the They Lived Happily Ever After ending was not to be. On April the 3rd, 1936, there was this bulletin on NBC Radio. The National Broadcasting Company presents a special bulletin, Trenton, New Jersey. Bruno Richard Hauptmann was electrocuted at 8.47 tonight for the murder of the Lindbergh baby. The death of the German-born carpenter had followed one of the most widely publicized murder trials in history. 
and the Lindberghs withdrew into almost total isolation from the public, except for a brief re-emergence by Colonel Lindbergh several years later, urging us not to get involved in World War II. This, coupled with his earlier praise of the German Air Force, caused some people to label Lindbergh a Nazi sympathizer, a stigma which marred, to the end, the life of the first American hero that the public got to know on the radio. Thank you, John. I'd like to add a brief personal note, if I may, about that kidnapping. As NBC's reporter at the Trenton State Police Headquarters, waiting for word, I broadcast the Lindbergh baby's formula in the desperate hope that the kidnappers would hear it and take care of the baby. It was one of the most moving moments of all my years at the network. More from NBC's first 50 years after this. NBC's first Fabulous 50 continues, once again, Ben Grower. Earlier we heard some of the great performers who were established stars before they came to NBC. But we also developed our own radio personalities. The Happiness Boys, for instance, Billy Jones and Ernie Hale. Don't let her go, you're not fast but not too slow. She'll never find a fella like me. Just feel great, you just laughed. I tore up her photograph. She'll never find a better like me. No, it's not Renfrew of the Mounted. This was the opening theme of the Clico Club Eskimos. Harry Reeser leading his musicians, clad in fur parkas. <laughs> They were really wearing fur parkas. I, I wore a tuxedo. See, I was the announcer. In the comedy department, there were easy aces. That money is in a bank of stay, and he's oh, not... Oh, all right. The minute you mention that money, you fly off the coop. I'll fly off the coop when you start talking about our nest acre we laid away for later on. There's nothing you need that money for now. Oh, well, we could travel and meet new people. I get tired of the same troubles all the time. You know how they say, familiarity breeds attempt. Isn't that awful? Would you mind if we don't discuss this anymore? I'd like to finish my paper here. And wherever you live, coast to coast, you didn't have to pay a personal visit to Manhattan to enjoy enjoy its music, NBC provided instant travel. Jump on the Manhattan merry-go-round, we're touring the luring of New York town. Broadway, a lot of the musical show, be our guest as you rest at your radio. We had music from the big city and we had comedy about small town families. One of the most lovable and most witty was Vic and Sade. Here Vic is playing rummy with his teenage son, Rush. Your sweet face is painted with a happy leer. I apprehend you think you've won the game. I have won the game. Look here. Hey, hey. You fellas done with your rummy? Uh, dry rot just blundered into an accidental victory. It's always accidental when I win. Better hop into that algebra study, and hadn't you, son? Algebra sure is a rotten topic. Fails to hold an individual's interest. You'll feel an individual's interest where you don't want it if that report card ain't up to snuff this time. Oh, Rush, get your feet down from there. I enjoy the sensation of twisting my spine out of shape. Get him down, I said. (laughs) Twist his spine out of shape. Kids in the 30s weren't very different from kids today, were they? But when it came to music, we had someone with us at NBC then who was unique. As a singer of light classical music, she was supreme. Jessica Dragonette, queen of radio. 
I can see her now, standing center stage in the old cathedral studio at 711 Fifth Avenue. A slight figure, golden-haired, her firm little chin tilted high, and the notes pouring out. From the Cathedral Studio, we drop in at 79 Wistful Vista, where Fibber McGee and Molly are in the kitchen. McGee never helps me wash the dirty dishes, McGee. Come in. You kids want to buy any Easter eggs? No, thank you, Mr. Oldtimer. I don't believe we want any. Oh, come on, kids. <laughs> Kid. Sorry, I didn't want any Easter eggs. Hey, that's I... the wrong door, old No, the, uh, that's the closet door. Oh, no. Uh, ain't you kids ever going to straighten out that gosh darn museum? Well, we're glad they never got it straightened out because it never failed to give us a laugh. Still does. Well, we're approaching station break time in our first Fabulous 50 celebration. But rather than my saying, this is Ben Grower, etc., etc., listen to what the late H.V. Kaltenborn, first dean of NBC Newsmen, once said about this traditional pause. The announcer would suck in his breath and rattle off. This is station WEAF, WJR, WTAG, WTIC, WLIT, WCSH, naming every station on the hookup. That was in 1926. A few months, and several breathless announcers later, we bought the electrical chimes. They cost only $48.50 at the time, but think of all the trouble they save as we now take a short pause for station identification. NBC continues celebrating its first Fabulous 50. Here's your host, Ben Grower. Like any healthy youngster, the NBC radio network was full of curiosity. We were willing to try just about anything. We even had Ben Bernie, the old maestro, trying to do on-the-scene coverage of a scientific balloon flight. <laughs> ben was better at band leading. But when it came to sports, NBC was there, fustest with the mostest. Graham McNamee with the first coast-to-coast -coast Rose Bowl in 1927. And then, in 1929, at the Kentucky Derby, Clem McCarthy calling the run for the Roses down the home stretch. Look out! On the outside, here comes the California coach, Nature Bird. He's coming at Clyde Van Dilsen. But Chucky Tony Nocatee shakes his whip, and the son of mighty man-of-war comes away. Clyde Van Dilsen by three lengths. 
1934, heavyweight boxing champion Primo Canera was losing to challenger Max Baer, and Graham McNamee was there. Canera has fallen. Canera has fallen again, but he is up instantly. The man won't stay down. Talk about nerve. He'll fight till he's dead, that man. He'll fight till nothing can stop him. Thanks to Graham's blow-by-blow description, folks listening to NBC at home had a much better idea of what was going on in the ring than most of the paying customers out there in the far reaches of Yankee Stadium. And there was a bonus for radio listeners. Graham brought a perspiring pugilist into their homes that night to deliver what eventually became the traditional greeting to a prizefighter's best friend, his mother. And now I'll have Max Bear over here in a minute, who has just won the heavyweight championship of the world. Hi, Graham. Hello, kiddo. Oh, mother, I want to say hello to you. I'm very happy. Joel Humphreys is now raising Max Bear's hand as a token of winning. Hello, Mom. Hello, Mom. <laughs> From Max Bear, the victor's valedictory. Then there was the contest, I guess you couldn't call it a sporting event, the contest involving three NBC regulars, Graham McNamee, Milton Cross, and someone who shall or certainly should be nameless, a speed-talking contest. Graham and Milton had done their bit, and then the final contestant read from Alice in Wonderland. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was out because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because you thought the sun had gotten a visit to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him. She had to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You couldn't see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky, and the birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The wall wasn't the carpenter were walking closer. They weren't like anything to see as far as either said. This rolling cleared away. They said it would be grand. The wall wasn't the carpenter walked down a mile or so. Then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters said and waited in a row. The time was coming. The wall was said to talk of many things of shoes and ships and ceiling wax and cabbages and kings. And so either sea is boiling hot and where the pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oyster cried before we have a chat and some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked them much for that. A loaf of bread, the wall was said, is about the chief of need. Pepper and vinegar besides a very good deal. We had to rule, we had to rule Graham McNamee out because he skipped a whole page. Yeah. Milton Cross. Milton Cross to 364, and uh, Ben Grouse up around 437. So, ladies and gentlemen, the winner and champion of these premises, Ben Grouse. Uh, uh, say a few words to the folks back home, Ben. Hello, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, it's plain the imprint of Max Bear was still in the tip of my tongue when that event took place. Well, we also covered events that had a heartwarming side to them. The annual return of the Swallows to Capistrano was one of them. At the mission of San Juan in California was reporter Buddy Twiss. It seems only fitting that the first greeting to the Swallow should come from the little children to whom they bring the most joy and happiness. A traditional song that is sung each year on the day of the arrival of the Swallows. Good morning, Mr. Swallow. Although it wasn't done for that reason, the broadcast did help save the mission, which was on the verge of closing for lack of funds as listeners sent in contributions, voluntary contributions. In 1936, NBC News took to the air in more ways than one. We sent reporter Jack Fraser in a plane to cover the arrival of the Queen Mary on its maiden voyage. Coming up now on the south side of the ship. And as we approach, we see there are some early morning risers that are taking their hearing out on the boat deck as they wave as we pass by to the starboard. We dip our wings as we pass by now. We're just passing the front funnel. 
But radio didn't just confine itself to fun and games. When the great floods of the middle 30s swept across the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys, our NBC affiliates there didn't just report the disaster, but they took an active part in the rescue work. Among them, WLW in Cincinnati, WAVE in Louisville, and in Memphis, Tennessee, station WMC did its share. To the residents of Ashport, Tennessee, in vicinity, Potter Dredge Boat is now at Ashport and will take refugees picked up at Gold Dust and inhabitants of Ashport to Ashport Bluff tomorrow. Anyone wanting to get out, come to Jap Henderson's store at Ashport tonight or as early as possible. Uh, we repeat a message that we gave... From that earlier, day to this, through flood, tornado, hurricane, earthquake... Whenever help has been needed, radio has been there. More of NBC's first Fabulous 50 after this. Now back to the first Fabulous 50 and host Ben Grower. From our earliest days, NBC has pioneered just about all the varied features broadcast on radio and television. Back in 1929, for example. You? Is anybody? That's the way the Goldbergs began. And Molly and Jake and their children, Rosalie and Sammy, made the daily dramatic serial an instant success, thanks to the warm, humorous nature of the show, very close to reality. Other daytime dramas which followed drifted away from this reality, became known as soap operas because of their melodramatic storylines and the nature of their sponsor's products. Among them were Road to Life, Porsche Faces Life, and these. The story of young Dr. Malone, dedicated to those men and women whose selfless service has inspired it, our doctors. And now, Stella Dallas. A continuation on the air of the true-to-life story of mother love and sacrifice in which Stella Dallas saw her beloved daughter Laurel marry into wealth and society and realizing the difference in their social worlds went out of Laurel's life. One man's family is dedicated to the mothers and fathers of the younger generation and to their bewildering offspring. Tonight we present Chapter 7, Book 43, entitled... The man who lay with his face in the leaves. <laughs> they weren't kidding. That was really the title of the episode. So it's easy to see why soap operas became a natural subject for satire. And no one ever did a better job of it than the great comedy team who were with us at NBC for years, Bob and Rain. Now, Tanglefoot, the greatest name in flypaper, brings you another episode of One Fella's Family. Today's episode entitled, Paint Up, Clean Up, is taken from Book 22, Chapter XXIV, pages 15, 16, 17, and two sentences from the middle of page 18. It's shortly after nine in the morning as we look in on the Butcher family. We find Father Butcher. Uh, uh, have you seen my purple plate? And Mother Butcher standing just inside the door, and she answers. What? And then Father Butcher. I said, Fairly, have you seen Will my purple... Will you be quiet, announce, and let us do it now, please? Yes, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be helpful. Yes. What were you saying, fool announcer? 
daily? Then he said, then she says, and then he says. It's perfectly obvious. We know what we're saying, thank you. We were here for more rehearsals than you were. I do add well, I more words to be here to your... for all rehearsals, you know. Well, you should see I mean, the I end of the sentence and stop. I just do the commercials, I introduce the show. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that it's in the contract yeah. that I have to take any guff from either one yeah. of you two. Felly, felly, felly. Well, well, let us do the program, and yeah. then we'll talk about it later. Yeah, now. What were you saying now, Father? Yes, I've lost my place here now. Fool I announcer. I you said something first. Well, you were looking for paint. Yeah. Oh, Felly, have you seen my purple paint? What do you want with purple paint? Huh? He wants to paint the garage with it. She knows what I want to do it. It's Will in her next quiet? line. Well, I, then. I'm not in the mood, Fanny. For what? To do this confounded script. Well, you're on the air. You can't just say you're not in the mood. Huh? You better count it, folks. Time's run out. Oh, am I going to burn. Will Father Butcher ever feel like finishing the episode? Will Fanny finally bop the announcer? Wish we could say, tune in tomorrow and find out, but it's all part of the past now. However, do stay tuned for David Brinkley. More of NBC Radio's anniversary celebration shortly. NBC's first fabulous 50. And once again, Ben Grower. As I said a little while ago, daytime dramatic shows began in 1929 on NBC. That was also the year when the first great national crisis of the radio era began. We've asked David Brinkley to guide us through it. David? Ben, 1929 started quietly enough for most citizens. But on Valentine's Day, in a garage on North Clark Street, Chicago, a somewhat noisy surprise party was held. Seven gangsters were massacred by fellow professionals costumed in police uniforms. As usual, the real police suspected Al Capone, but also as usual, they were unable to prove a case against him. Following this, no doubt, historic event, the year moved along, the economy was flying high, Admiral Richard Byrd flew high, too, over the South Pole, and on October 24th, a new variety program became airborne on NBC Radio. My time is your time. Your time Rudy Valley, self-styled vagabond lover, settled down as host for the show on which he would introduce many of the great comedians of the era. The next day, and no cause and effect relationship has ever been established, the next day, the great stock market crash began. Before it was over, the value of securities had dropped $30 billion. Some stockbrokers, ruined by the crash, followed the descent of their fortunes by leaping from the upper floors of tall buildings, furnishing material for a somewhat macabre joke by the usually lovable Eddie Cantor. Nowadays, when a man walks into a hotel and requests a room on the 19th floor, the clerk asks him, for sleeping or jumping? Keep your sunny side up, up, hide the side that gets blue. Despite this musical encouragement, as devastation spread from the stock market through the entire economy and unemployment rose to unprecedented levels, 
12 million out of work at a time when our population was half what it is today, despair and anger became the reigning emotions of the day. Drastic solutions were called for. Herbert Hoover, the man who had become president in 1928 with his chicken in every pot, two cars in every garage slogan, defined the major issue as he sought re-election in 1932. This campaign is more than a contest between two men. It is more than a contest between two parties. It is a contest between two philosophies of government. Mr. Hoover's philosophy lost, and on March 4th, 1933, the new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, began an explanation of his philosophy with a phrase that became as famous as some of Shakespeare's. First of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. A day later, Roosevelt again made use of network radio for the first of his fireside chats. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days, why it was done, and what the next steps are going to be. The bank holiday, while resulting in many cases in great inconvenience, the bank holiday was the first of many dramatic moves Roosevelt made. There was also the Agricultural Adjustment Act, then the Civilian Conservation Corps, and other programs. All became better known by their initials, but not necessarily better loved by FDR's enemies, not the least vocal of whom was Louisiana's flamboyant Senator Huey Long who referred to himself as the Kingfish, after the character in Amos and Andy, who was head of the Mystic Knights of the Sea. Now it is with the PWAs, the GWAs, the NRAs, the AAAs, JUGs, and the GINs. There is starvation, there is homelessness, there is misery on every hand and corner, but mind you, in the meantime, Mr. Roosevelt has had his way. There's one man that can't blame anything on anybody but himself, and that's Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Despite Senator Long's skillful attack, President, as he put it, Franklin Delano Roosevelt persisted. And by the 1936 convention, a song which had had the misfortune of being written in 1929, the year of the crash, now seemed to have a measure of validity. Happy days are here again, but were they? In Germany, growing out of the depression there and feeding on a diet of nationalism and racism, the Nazi menace had emerged. But we were too busy enjoying our re-emerging prosperity to pay it much attention. For us, Ben, happy days, if not here again, seem not too far off. True, David, and arrive they did, if only briefly, before World War II began. More from NBC Radio's first 50 years, right after this.
Here's Ben Grower again with more of NBC's first fabulous 50. As we weathered those depression years, we saw new programs added almost every month to the NBC roster. Broadcasts from the Metropolitan Opera, religious programs, a new type of show called panel shows. And we heard new superstars in the making. Let's go back to the original amateur hour with Major Bowes. Good evening, friends. Once again, the wheel of chance, our uh, fate, as you please, is about to revolve. And as the barker, standing at the wheel of fortune, says, around, around she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. Nor does anybody know what will That night, the wheel stopped in front of a brash, skinny kid from Hoboken, named a Sinatra. Who'll, uh, who'll speak for the group? I will. I'm Frank Major. Uh, we're looking for jobs. How about it? Uh, everyone that's ever heard us liked us. We think we're pretty good. And we play real swing music, too. Real modern swing music, ultra-modern music. What's your tune? The Coice of an Aching Heart. <laughs> the Coice of an Aching Heart. You made me what I am today. I hope you're satisfied. You drag me down and down until the soul within me dies. Even way back then, he did it his way. And he finally got his own show on NBC. And on October 26, 1935, Wallace Berry, gruff, tough, and lovable movie star, was host to a 12-year-old girl at another NBC variety show. Now, what do you want to do when you grow up to be a great big girl, huh? I want to be a singer, Mr. Berry. And I'd like to act, too. Well, you'll do it. Don't worry. I'll go right to it. If you need me, I'll be standing right there. Here. <laughs> Broadway, street of a million lives. Broadway, street of a million sides. Broadway, street of a million nights. Nights of pain and Everybody dance From the way the rhythm It's got me Everybody dance Out on the gay white way In each merry cafe Orchestras play Taking your breath away With a Broadway rhythm It's got me Everybody sing Judy Garland, 
12 years old, showing then all the skill that made her one of the greatest entertainers of our age. Well, that's a tough act to follow, but there are a couple of fellows who can manage it, both of them hosting their own shows for many years here on NBC. First, I'd like to hear you sing. Okay. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits for me. <clears throat> well, what do you think, Mr. Hope? Let me see your feet. My feet? Why? Yeah, with that voice, you'll make a wonderful grape crusher. The prospective grape crusher was Bing Crosby, of course. And the cheerfully caustic comments came from Bob Hope. Bob will be your host for the second hour of our anniversary celebration next week. More comedy then, more music, and the real-life drama of a world at war, as well as other memorable sounds from our second decade. Well, this is where I get off. Just reviewing these fabulous years with you has really been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I. This is Ben Grower. You have been listening to the first Fabulous 50, produced by the NBC Radio Network and NBC News. NBC Radio Network celebrates its first Fabulous 50. Howdy! Hi, ho, everybody. Good evening, Mr. First Nasher. Good evening, Mr. Mr. North American. All the ships at sea, let's go to press. Where? The only thing we have to fear. Ladies and gentlemen, easy aces. Mr. Allen! We are resolved to destroy Hitler. You were expecting maybe Emperor Shapiro Hito? Everybody awake! Let the word go forth. Ignition. Lift off. I have a dream. Hello, Linda. I'm mortified. Blow like a butterfly. Sting like a bee. Let me make one point clear. NBC Radio, America's first network, presents highlights from its first 50 years. Five one-hour shows with hosts Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Arlene Francis, John Chancellor, and Ben Grauer. Brought to you in part by Alice Chalmers. The world needs more of what Alice Chalmers makes. By the premium wines of Ernest and Julio Gallo. And by Delta, the airline run by professionals. Delta is ready when you are. Your host this hour, Bob Hope. Yes, this is Bob NBC. That's NBC for Night Before Christmas, because I feel like Santa Claus with a sack of super sounds to hang on your radio antenna, Hope. Bringing back our second decade when NBC radio really came of age. And I'm sure that when this hour's over, you'll be singing thanks for the memory right along with me. At our 10th birthday celebration in 1936, the general, the man who started it all, David Sarnoff, summed it up in one short sentence. In 10 years, radio broadcasting has grown from an exotic novelty to a daily necessity. 
How right he was. And the daily quota began for NBC listeners at breakfast time with this program from Chicago. Presenting America's favorite, the NBC Breakfast Club with Don McNeil. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to you. We woke up bright and early to how did you? The coffee's on, the fruit, the toast, the bacon, and the skillet. And Everett Mitchell is nuts. I remember that at some point in the proceedings, Don would invite his listeners to march around their breakfast tables. And all across America, folks actually got up and circled their bacon and eggs while the band played. I don't know if it did the digestion any good, but it got the day off to a cheerful start. Later in the day, there were soap operas, of course. Mom wept. The kids, they weren't interested in such mushy grown-up stuff. You couldn't drag them away from the radio, however, when the King of the West galloped into earshot every afternoon. Are you still there? A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. And then there was and many other shows to keep those junior-sized pulses pounding. Then in the evenings, programs the whole family could enjoy together. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As Eddie Cantor was our man on Sundays. I had my show on Tuesdays. On another evening, my co-traveler from those Road to Everywhere movies, Bing Crosby, hosted his variety show, The Craft Music Hall. And Fred Allen, Jack Benny, Rudy Valley all had their own shows. And we used to trade visits, make guest appearances on each other's show. Thank you very much, Eddie. Hey, Bob. Yes, sir. I was on your program Tuesday night, and now you're on my show. You know we make a great team, Bob and Eddie? Yeah, hope and hopeless. <laughs> I was kidding, of course. Eddie was anything but hopeless when it came to performing. Right. Oh, Eddie. How do you feel? Well, I've got a cold. My tonsils are enlarged. I'm running a temperature. I've got stabbing pains in my head. My back hurts me, but knock on wood, I still have my health. Yes, you could count on NBC to keep you entertained, and you could also count on us for the latest news. On May 6, 1937. Lakehurst, New Jersey. The German dirigible Hindenburg is on fire. It is reported that the entire ship is involved. The Hindenburg had been what actually was happening was described at the scene by reporter Herbert Morrison. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... The first in the plane. Get it started. Get it started. It's crashing. It's crashing. It's crashing. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us said it's terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... Four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the famous crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the fans. Well, our sympathy went out to the victims of the tragedy involving that German airship. But only a year later, we cheered like mad when a German prize fighter was practically pulverized at Yankee Stadium. Clem McCarthy was at ringside. Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him right to the body, a left hook to the jaw, and Schneeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Joe Lewis not only knocked out Max Schmeling, but flattened Adolf Hitler's racist theory of Aryan supremacy. 
A timeout now. Meet you back in the late 30s again shortly. The first Fabulous 50 will continue right after this. Now back to the first Fabulous 50 with Bob Hope. Back in 1938, an Englishman with a rolled-up umbrella, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, returned from Munich waving a piece of paper and said, Peace in our time. And most of the world gave a big sigh of relief. The following June, King George VI and his wife paid us a visit. NBC Radio broadcast a special program in honor of the royal pair, with dramatic bits by notable British performers who were here at that time and an incredible musical performance by the distinguished actors Nigel Bruce, Sir Cedric Hardwick, and C. Aubrey Smith. Down in the meadow, in a little bitty pool, swam three little fishes, and a mammoth fishy too. Swim, said the mammoth fishy, swim if you can, and they swam and they swam all over the dam. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo, and they swam and they swam all over the dam. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo. Boop, boop, dittum, dottum, wottum, shoo. And they swam and they swam right over the dam. I don't know whether they should have gotten the Victoria Cross for that performance or a firing squad, but it did prove that the English sense of humor was alive and kicking. Then to close the program, the grand old man of American theater, George M. Cohan. May I propose a toast to the health of His Majesty King George VI. The men and women of the American theater join their English cousins in a salute to their fine young king, their lovely queen. Bon voyage, Your Majesties. God bless you both. And back to Britain the king and queen went, but it was only ten weeks later that this voice was heard from Germany with NBC's Max Jordan translating the key words. From now on, bomb will be met by bomb. Then on September the 1st, 1939... Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this broadcast for some last-minute bulletins. Warsaw. The Foreign Office said today that German planes had bombed Krakow and Katowice in southwestern Poland. Military operations... And finally on Sunday the 3rd, after an ultimatum demanding that the Germans agree to end the hostilities, British Prime Minister Chamberlain broadcast to his nation and to the world. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war. I personally was on the Queen Mary crossing from Southampton to New York when this was uh, announced. And I went down into the salon on this Sunday morning, and everybody on that boat was in the salon praying and crying. And I was supposed to do a, a ship's concert. And I told the captain, I said, there's no way I can do a ship's concert with the people in this condition. He said, it might be the best time in the world to do it. And I went on and did that show that night. And I opened up with a very broad joke about the woman that was standing on the corner in London with her dress up over her hat. And a fellow said, lady, you're getting your legs all wet. She says, I don't care. My legs are 50 years old, but the hat's brand new. And they laughed at that. They, they seemed to want the broad humor. They wanted something to make them forget what had just happened. World War II had begun. 
From our NBC correspondents in Europe, we got continuing reports of the Nazis' victorious march through Europe. First Poland, then Belgium, Holland, France, followed by the British evacuation from Dunkirk. Then in June 1940, Winston Churchill began to rally his people. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And old Winnie was right. The Nazis' air blitz of Britain began. Terror bombing of London, Liverpool, Coventry, and many other cities. But the British took it all and fought back. NBC newsmen stayed on the job, too, and on one occasion hung a microphone outside the studio while they were on the air so we could hear an actual air raid in progress. This is London at about 23 minutes past 1 o'clock. Fred Bates speaking. London is now having its 25th successive night raid. Lord Wilton appealed to... The carts that used to sell coffee and meat pies to night workers and people just out at night to reopen their businesses as a help in feeding the homeless. Uh, the minister promised that the coffee stall orders would be given gasoline, food, and air raid shelters. Here at home, we rooted for the British, of course, and lively music like that of the Andrews sisters helped speed up production of aircraft and armaments in factories that pipe radio programs to their workers. But life was pretty much the same as usual. Still, even the usual sometimes turns out to be unusual and funny. You'll hear, back in Arfamo or so, I was born in England, you know. More from NBC's first 50 years after this. NBC's first fabulous 50 continues. Once again, Bob Hope. While the war in Europe went on, in 1940, NBC went to Philadelphia for the Republican convention where a political newcomer, Wendell Wilkie, pulled a big upset and got the nomination. And his rooters and the gallery went wild. Unfortunately for Wendell, cheers don't count in an election, only votes. So FDR was re-elected for an unprecedented third term. In the non-political world, the public's choice included NBC's great slate of musical programs. Toscanini and the NBC Symphony headed the classical section, of course. And in the popular music department, there was this one, for example. My Georgia Melody, a Georgia song identifying a two-year series of broadcasts from WSB, whose call letters mean Welcome South, Brother, tonight initiates a nationwide NBC program. It originates amid the magnificence of the Atlanta Junior League Costume Ball, forerunning the world premiere of the screen version of the historic novel Gone with the Wind, written by Atlanta's modest genius, Margaret Mitchell. I present the Dean of American Broadcasters, Landon Kay, the little colonel of the oldest radio station in Dixie. Good evening. I'm honored with the assignment of introducing our master of ceremonies on this NBC program, the cherished chancellor of NBC's College of Musical Knowledge, Professor Kay Kaiser. Welcome, South Kaiser. Evening, folks. Hi, <laughs> Well, children, here's a sight to behold, one that could never be put in words, and I'm not even going to try. 
We've got lots to tell you later on, but right now, come on, chillin', just dance. Oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny, how you can love. Yes, dance, chillin', he said, and they did. Country music got a better than fair shake, too, at the Grand Old Opry. Here's Charlie Walker. Could steal my heart away from me. Only you could win my love <laughs> Sounds like she stepped on a snake. Only Barefoot. You could make me love you like I do. Only you, only you, only you. And there were other Never kinds of musical shows. So Fred Waring's Pennsylvania, The Telephone Hour, The Voice of Firestone, which all seemed to have one thing in common. Tenors who specialized in high notes. My heart sings to you. tenor on my show, too. He could not only hit high notes, but could shatter glass. And the dawn comes up like thunder Everybody awake! Oh, he's beautiful. Jerry Colonna. What a talent. And he could deliver a punchline with the best, too. Hello, Hope. I'm calling you from Canada. From Canada? Why are you talking so loud? No telephone. (laughs) (laughs) We had great times in those shows. And there were more to come. It's time for the mid-hour recess now, but instead of the usual NBC chimes, we thought you'd be interested in the chimes we used on special occasions during the war years. Newsman Don Goddard talked about them at the time. The fourth chime rings only when news is breaking of world importance. When it rings, all of us at NBC spring into action, wherever we may be. The fourth chime means to us, call the office. Get down here. Big things are happening. And since something very special will be happening shortly when I return with more of NBC's first fabulous 50, I'll leave you with two words. Bob Hope and four chimes. NBC continues its first Fabulous 50. Once again, your host, Bob Hope. Hey, remember how Jimmy Durante used to say, I got a million of them? He was talking about jokes. Well, we got a million, too, of memories on NBC radio. 
On September the 14th, 1940, President Roosevelt's fellow Americans listened to this broadcast with more than just passing interest. The first number drawn by the Secretary of War is serial number 158. That scream came from the mother of one of the young men whose number was picked, which made him eligible for the first peacetime draft. And I guess some of those 158s, those who got 1A ratings in their physicals, were among the servicemen we entertained later on. What a way to get an audience. Anyway, aside from the draft, life went on much as before. All you had to do was join Fred Allen for a stroll down his alley. Somebody, I say, somebody now. Yes, I know. Claghorn's the name, Senator Claghorn. I know, I know, you're from Dixie. When I eat crackers in bed, I only eat Georgia crackers. Now, wait a look. <laughs> Way down upon the Swanee River. Look, you're a little... I'm fla- singing Swanee song. Well, I know what you're singing. Show some reverence, son. Kneel down and uncover. Now, wait a <laughs> I wonder how Titus Moody is doing. Howdy, bub. <laughs> Johnny, Mr. Moody. Do you have any trouble sleeping? I only half sleep. Half sleep? I got short eyelids. Well, are you the only one awake on the farm? The cow had insomnia. Your cow didn't sleep at all? The bags under her eyes were so big. I didn't know which end to milk. Let's try, let's try this next door here. No. Oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. You are expecting maybe Hoagie Carbuncle. (laughs) Tell me, Mrs. Ann, do you have trouble sleeping? Who could sleep? Every night with his dreaming, my husband Pierre is waking me up. He dreams, huh? One night, Pierre is dreaming he is the lone stranger. Yeah. <laughs> All night long, he is yelling, Hi-ho, Silver! Hi-ho, Silver, huh? Upstairs is living a Mr. Silver. Yeah. <laughs> All night, he is yelling back, Hi-ho, Nussbaum! <laughs> Love that Mrs. Nussbaum. You were expecting maybe Hoagie Carbuncle. In 1941, we also cheered Whirlaway, the four-legged wonder with a fantastic finishing kick, who won the Triple Crown. We roped it up for jolting Joe DiMaggio as he hit safely in 56 straight games. Still a record. And on November the 15th, 1941, our head sports honcho at NBC, Bill Stern, talked about plans for the next year. This coming year will be NBC's biggest year in sports. To start the new year off right, the two most important postseason football games will be broadcast exclusively over NBC. The Rose Bowl in Pasadena and the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Bill only batted 500 with that prediction. The Rose Bowl game wasn't held in Pasadena. Something happened on the first Sunday in December that changed lots of plans. The Sammy Kay Show was interrupted by this bulletin. The Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. Pearl Harbor wasn't the only place under attack. Hello, NBC. This is Bert Silent speaking from Manila. Manila has just been bombed. In fact, right now it is being bombed. And without warning, Japanese bombers started bombing Fort William McKinley, Nichols Airfield, and the RCA transmitting station. 
Next day, radio brought this message to the nation. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. United States of America... The war we'd been watching from the sidelines was now our war, too. And FDR expressed the feelings of our people with these final words. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Our lives changed from that moment on, and so did radio. More of NBC's first fabulous 50 after this. Now back to the first fabulous 50 and host Bob Hope. Let's remember From Pearl Harbor on, NBC Radio became wartime radio. We added to our already expanded news staff, started new programs to help sell war bonds and to get the public involved in salvage drives. Even our sports and entertainment programs were affected. Our broadcast of the Rose Bowl game came from Durham, North Carolina, where it had been moved because there was concern the Japanese might bomb the West Coast. Incidentally, soap operas were affected too. And now we present once again Mary Noble, backstage wife. The story of a little Iowa girl who marries America's most handsome actor, Larry Noble, matinee idol of a million other women. And the story of the change war brings as Mary finds herself a war wife. And comedians like Red Skelton develop jokes based on bundles for Britain and food rationing. Thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Bundles for Skelton program. <laughs> Say, Skelton, you know, I've never worked with you before. No. Tell me, are, uh, are you a pretty good comedian? Well, I don't know, but I'm the best they could get for 36 coupons. And all kinds of performers took their talents to where the troops were. Miller and his orchestra toured training camps and overseas bases. Tragically, Glenn, a captain in special services, was lost when a plane he was traveling in disappeared over the English Channel. But the orchestra carried on, led by Sergeant Ray McKinley. And there were other orchestras and singers and dancers, jugglers, even comedians. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bob. Don't ask me where I am because I don't know, and even if I did know, I couldn't tell because it's a military secret hope. Yes, sir. And we had a great trip over. We flew over. Didn't bother me a bit. <laughs> had a few drinks in Canada, flew blind all the way, and here we are. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, it's a thrill to be here, and I've got very little to report from home. Outside of the drafting all the leading men in Hollywood, that is the young leading men. Crosby's still there. <laughs> you know, if it keeps up, most of the leading men next season will be on the adrenaline side. Can you imagine Hedy Lamar waiting to be kissed while Louis Stone looks around for a place to plug in his heating pad? 
I remember Francis Langford helped out with the comedy and singing on that trip. And we were able to report to the folks back home about the great work our young flyers were doing when we appeared on Morgan Beatty's war news program from England. There were NBC correspondents on all the European fighting fronts, of course. North Africa, Sicily, Italy. And finally, from the invasion fleet off the Normandy beaches, on D-Day came this historic report by George Hicks. Here we go again, another plane come over. Got one. We got that one. It's right here. Did we? Yeah. Just off our port side in the sea. The lights of that burning Nazi plane are just twinkling now in the sea and going out. Talk about cool. That was George's middle name. And this was the same fellow who used to report the Easter Sunday parades in New York over a microphone concealed in his top hat. Came a long way from that, didn't he? More from NBC Radio's first 50 years, right after this.